It's so good to be back, listener. I know, I know I have been AWOL recently, and I know that I am way, way behind on the content schedule that I posted at the beginning of this year for the select but very appreciated few of you who are keeping close track. I mean, you know how New Year's resolutions go. But in my defense, uh, life has been a little chaotic for me, in 2021 so far, listener, um, I also had to replace my microphone, which, by the way, is very nice now. I've replaced it with an MV7, which I'm very happy with. The only issue is, is that the new place that I'm living at, there is like a whole colony of birds that live in the uh, the shrubbery outside, and there's only so much I can do um, to uh, edit edit the bird singing out. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe Schizotopia will have a little, uh, a little nature vibe, um, <laughs> relaxing nature vibe to go along with the podcast now. Um, but if you, you are hearing birds, it's, uh, it's not you, it's me. Anyway, yada, yada, excuses, excuses. Um, I do think now I am just getting back into my groove, hopefully getting back on schedule. And so you can look forward to new podcasts, uh, that will be coming out soon as well as the next video essay which i'm um as well as the next video essay which i've i've really taken my sweet ass time with but hopefully that will be out this month as well which reminds me if you signed up for the patreon before the end of last year in 2020 so if you were a year zero subscriber i owe you a poster as some of you may remember i promised um those should be going out now had a little bit of a problem um, printing. I'd never printed out an, an image that big before, so had to had to mess around with that a little bit. I am sorry for taking a little longer than I'd hoped for. Um, I think at least two of you should have them by now. Um, if I missed you, you gotta DM me. Um, you gotta DM me whatever mailing address you'd like me to use. Um, anyway, as for you new patrons, 2021 patrons, or people just dying for some first edition <laughs> Schizotopia merchandise, um, I will be getting something out this year, I promise. Uh, shirts or patches or NFTs, something. Um, I wish I could say I run a tight ship, but I do not. Your captain is drunk, okay? Uh, but I never promised it wouldn't be a bumpy ride. I only promised we'd get there eventually. But enough with the housekeeping listener. We have a very exciting guest this week. But first, I want to talk about immiseration, acceleration, and what I think I will now be referring to as Anglo-pessimism. Now, there is a miseration in the Marxist sense, the process in which the workers more or less produce themselves into a state of abject poverty as capital accumulates, wages fall, etc., etc. But then there is the more common use of the term, uh, which is simply the idea that as people become more miserable for whatever reason, they become more radical. And obviously, this is closely related to the idea of so-called accelerationism. Again, in the Marxist sense, uh, this could be seen as the way in which capitalism speeds up history as it melts down all that was formerly solid, as it creates new markets, new technologies, etc., etc. But again, I think for radicals, especially on the left, though increasingly on the right now, uh, there is a more romantic notion, a more romantic image of immiseration and acceleration, in which a righteously indignant humanity 
rises up to tear down and overthrow the existing order in a great revolutionary alchemy where blood and fire is rapidly transmuted into utopia. I think the spirit of 1789 is still stronger than the spirit of 1848 or 1917 for that matter, at least in the West. But of course, the problem with this image of immiseration is that in real life, misery doesn't seem to inspire self-sacrifice or high-mindedness in most people. In fact, it inspires the exact opposite. After all, we don't find a lot of compassion and solidarity in the urban ghettos of the United States. We certainly don't find it in the trailer parks and opioid-soaked rust belt towns of the U.S. either. And I would highly recommend that everyone watches the documentary Meth Storm, which I believe you can still watch on HBO. It shows what happens to a southern town that loses its local Walmart, the bedrock of the local economy, and as a result, this town slowly turns into a small uh, amphetamine-fueled American Juarez. I think it's a great window into the decline of the white working class in America, and I think it's one that closely parallels the immiseration and decline of um, black America during the crack epidemic. And I think that that, that parallel is actually stronger than a lot of people um, want to admit, actually. Now, there's an intellectual tendency you may or may not be aware of, called Afro-pessimism, the idea that the historic oppression of black people has been so deep and so thorough that even today they only exist as political subjects in the negative sense, as permanent outliers. In a word, it's the ultimate black pill. Uh, there is no liberation for the black man and woman, only survival at best progress, whatever that means, is a liberal illusion. I think there is an unconscious and unspoken corollary that many people hold, whether they know it or not, uh, which I call Anglo-pessimism, the idea that white people will never become class conscious. They can only become more reactionary and racist and authoritarian as they become uh, immiserated. To put it another way, if it is the destiny of black people to always be the victim, then it is the destiny of white people to always be the victimizer. Pessimism, indeed. Unfortunately, I think this might be true in as much as misery seems to breed those tendencies in everyone. What is, after all, the bizarre, dogmatic, and vindictive identity politics of today, if not the institutionalization of historical misery? Well, for my part, listener, I don't think misery is the answer. Um, and I think that woke capital is selling us a commodified form of misery so that everyone in this country will remain in a pliable and hysterical state one that is suited for more endless consumption of our own decline, not intellectual freedom, and certainly not economic freedom. While I don't think I got my guest to quite get on the post-woke train with me just yet, and while I have no idea what America's current political remix will sound like when it's done, I think, for better or for worse, my guest and I made a pretty good duet for this podcast, so stick around.
Hello and welcome back to Schizotopia, the official podcast of Schizotopia.net. As always, I'm your host, Maxwell Cody, and joining me today is the internet's most diabolically dialectical, nonstop shit-talking DJ, Mr. He Valencia. He, how are you? I'm pretty, pretty, pretty good. I'm, my brain is like kind of fried right now, <laughs> but other than that, I should be good. To be fair, is there anyone whose brain isn't fried after uh, a year of quarantine? What level of fried are you are you uh, are you talking here? I would say that, like, on a scale of like my brain, I say well, on a level of fried, probably like a good seven and a half or eight. But you know what? <laughs> I shouldn't even be complaining because, like, we're all terminally online, anyways. You get what I'm saying? So, so like when quarantine started. I was just like, uh, this is just an extension of every day anyways, because I'm kind of like relatively isolated in that sense in the first place. So like when everybody was complaining about being stuck indoors or having to stick to this road routine, I'm just like, man, the rest of us, that's just like terminating online. This is normal, you know? Right. Well, that and that's what's that's what's funny is that, you know, coronavirus just kind of sped up or made us more aware of what was already going on. Yeah, Exactly. For me, I almost, I almost feel, I feel a little bit of guilt because quarantine, at least like the first six months of it, for me, were kind of euphoric. As somebody who's a little bit of an introvert, maybe a little bit antisocial, like this excuse to just be by myself all the time and nobody can bother me because of quarantine was great for me. I called it the coronaissance. I feel that. That, that makes total sense because I tend to be, well, I used to be like a really big introvert and like I, over time when I got older, tend to lean into like ambivert so I can like turn it on and off so just like doing all this and then I had I actually caught the virus and I had to sit out of work for like a month I was mm-hmm. just like oh perfect now I could just kind of like sit around and just do whatever all day it's just like perfect timing so I agree with you on it like being can you tell me hold on can you use the term ambivert I gotta tell you that's giving me like sigma male vibes is 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 ambivert is ambivert the the sigma male of introversion or extroversion I think it's like they basically from what I get from it, ambivert. So we tend to lean into introvert, but we can kind of we're we're good at being social when necessary. So it's just like a switch on and off. But the thing about it, we only have but so much energy because I know like traditionally introverts, they tend to just be like super like a bit more socially inept, whereas like ambiverts like we prefer to be introverted but when it's necessary to kind of like you know entertain people whatever we can do it when at the drop of a dime all right so ambivert sigma male sapiosexual that's got to be the winning triangle for for dating apps now right <laughs> that's the, the, um, the first trinity right the, the, you gotta call the myers briggs personality <laughs> yes. letters intp in, in the middle yeah to top it off there's the new that's that's the new that's the new the new male Kabbalah, I guess. I actually did one of those personality things and I forgot what specific one I got. But apparently the personality trait that I got is super rare and I share it with Nelson Mandela. I was just like, oh, OK, that's kind of like cool, similar personality type. Yeah, well, they always make sure to show you the cool people that, that have your same personality type. They don't really show you the fucked up psychopaths, right? Like they wouldn't tell yeah, you. Yeah. They wouldn't tell you if like Hitler was also um, INTJ or whatever. You have the um, same personality as Ted Kaczynski or yeah, something exactly. like that. Yeah. I um, because I always get INTP almost every time I've taken a test, I get INTP, and uh, Carl Jung is supposed to also be INTP. So I, I guess I'm in mm. good company. Um, but. 
for people who somehow still don't know, um, who are you, he Valencia? What do you do? You're you're kind of like a political theorist by day, I would say, in a, a techno DJ by night. Are you some kind of superhero? Yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. I mean, obviously, like my main focus is techno uh, DJ, DJ and producing things in that realm. But I guess I kind of like got a stick or a kick of things just kind of like um, just theorizing, just kind of like commentating on politics and stuff and all that. Because, I mean, for me being like involved in art, like art and politics has always been kind of like something that was always there for me since day one, just like kind of like organizing with um, black political organizations since I was like before a teenager. So just kind of like being around those people. And then when I finally started getting like more to music, it just kind of like came naturally. And I was just like, oh, okay, maybe I can like start commentating on political things and like kind of applying like my knowledge of like theory and things of like that onto everyday things just trying to basically for me i'm just trying to kind of like figure out the world with curiosity whether it be uh political history and anthropology anthropology and things of that matter just trying to like figure out things and would you would you say that uh then that politics and music always kind of went hand in hand with you because it sounds like they both of these things were, were were coming up for you probably in your early adolescence yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, because like even before dance music, you know, like when you're a teenager, you get involved in the punk scene and right. hardcore. So like you get I'm, I was like rubbing against, you know, a lot of like lefty types or whatever or like mm-hmm. edgelord dudes, whether it be like punk and noise. So I guess naturally all of that kind of like comes into play, even if it's not like consciously, it'll be like subconsciously. You pick up a punk record, you hear guys like stuff like gizm like extreme anarcho punk stuff or you pick up like a a most deaf record and he's kind of like the more like hotep style thing it it just kind of like comes naturally right well it's funny because for me right that's like i i I got i guess i got into uh, music and politics roughly around the same time but then for me it's also that um when i was i guess first hitting puberty and getting into this kind of stuff um i was also first getting the internet like I didn't get the internet until I was about 14. Before that, oh, maybe wow. I could use the internet a little bit at school. So like, this is what I always say. Um, and I'm not sure actually how old you are, Valencia, but like I'm 33. And, you know, as I, I feel oh, like 29. I'm, okay. So we're, we're about in the same group then. But part of being millennials, um, and I'm sure you'll understand this, is that like we remember the time before the internet and we remember the time after. Like we're the only generation that really is going to have that contrast. Um, or maybe the last generation to have that contrast. But that's true i the, the first like politics that i started getting into was through like <laughs> it's funny it was through talking to random people on aim which doesn't even exist anymore or live journal or myspace and you could just suddenly talk did you to ever do irc though. did you IRC. ever do irc what, what was irc um it's it not quite aim but basically like irc chats it would just be like these chat rooms where you have to like put in a specific code and you could talk about like topics and whatnot oh would it be topics by like, you'd go into was it that you would go into i remember going into chat rooms that would be chat rooms by subject and you could go in anonymously and talk about whatever the subject yeah, was supposed yeah. to be but i just trolled those when i was a teenager because you would find like you know you'd find like whatever the like christians for recovering from masturbation and you'd go in there and say a bunch of insane stuff about how you're a masturbation addict when really like when really you're just like a 13 year old 14 year old shit poster that kind of thing but i guess what i mean to say is like i almost half my life now like i've been engaging in crazy internet politics and like my introduction to politics in a way was talking to weird people like one of the first people i ever spoke to 
um, about Bolshevism or like got me to read the Communist Manifesto or Karl Marx or any of that. The guy was a crazy Nazball and I just didn't know it because I was wow. too young. Um, I was also talking about how um, I almost became a, a LaRouche guy when I was like 16. <laughs> because <laughs> this I've been actually reading about him. That's crazy. Yeah. I kind of like see uh, um, a resurgence of how he acts in different things we could get to that the later, well we'll get into the syncretism yeah but what's <laughs> funny to me is this dude this guy i was like 16 years old this guy must have been like in his early 20s and he and he approached me uh outside of my high school i think and he you know he seemed like hey you seem like a cool guy probably because the way i was dressed i still kind of looked i had like long hair and was maybe like a little punk looking a little stonery looking whatever um edgy teen look right and he's like yeah i can talk to this guy and he told me that his whole life had been meaningless and that all he had done was smoke weed and listen to radiohead all day <laughs> until being introduced to larouche and i'm like who's larouche and he tells me like oh we're gonna build this super pipeline through alaska that's gonna like economically reintegrate um the the world economy and that this is what fdr would would have wanted and all of just this and like these these crazy kind of like um it's funny now because it's almost like they wanted um, America to become like China and do sort of like a ZZ Ping uh, Belt and Road uh, kind of project or something like that. And it sounded kind of cool. aggressive state capitalism. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I was like, I, I guess that sounds kind of cool. I mean, it certainly sounds cool, cooler than George Bush and John Kerry. Um, so I was like, yeah, I gave him my phone number and uh, they, they called me a few nights later and like, hey, we're having a meeting. We really need you to come. And I was actually, you know, I, I wasn't trying to duck them, but I actually just said, oh, well, I'd, uh, you know, I'd have some homework to do or something. I can't do it tonight. Maybe another time. And they started calling me up after that um, for for like days, maybe even weeks. They were calling me over and over Damn. again and trying to guilt trip me and saying all this stuff like, we thought you were smart. We thought you really cared about the future of the world. And I was like, hold on. I have to look up more about this LaRouche. So I went on this LaRouche deep dive and learned all about him and how crazy he was and how he just like basically changed from like far left to far right throughout his life. And I was like, oh, my God, he was so much crazier than I ever could have conceived of because it was so outside <laughs> of the kind of Republican, Democrat <laughs> type of politics I was used to. Right. And so that was kind of like my introduction to insane Internet politics or that the way in which that from now on, like any politics you engage with in the real world, anybody, if they just are willing to take the 10 minutes to do it, can can look up the whole history of what that political movement is. <laughs> you almost got inducted into a cult. It, it wouldn't be the first. It wouldn't be the last time either. It wouldn't be the last time, man. Because there's been so many. There's so many other crazy groups that I got that I got myself tangled up with. Because my favorite holiday used to be Earth Day, not because I'm like a big environmentalist, but my favorite holiday used to be Earth Day because I would love getting stoned as a teenager and going to Balboa Park in San Diego um, on Earth Day because every single wing imaginable would show up with whatever their worldview was and i just loved being high out of my skull like talking to these people and engaging with them <laughs> in whatever like whatever their fucking theory was right and it would range from people being like religious crazies to maybe like religious but not so crazy but just like you know proselytizers to people straight up being like the government has uh, mind control microwave <laughs> satellites and like you need to buy my supplements to keep you safe and like those types of people I don't know if you ever interact with tribes. They're like this hippie utopian movement where they want people to be like, you're like half hippie, half Amish, and you just sort of become nomadic with them and travel on their buses, but then Whoa. they drop you off at their restaurants. They run restaurants throughout. I know they got one in that, one right That here is in so County. West Coast, though, since yes, you mentioned Cali. The yes. closest we have to here in the Midwest is Amish, but they're like so closed off the only time i had interactions with them would be like in public or working like public jobs but for the most part they're like so close to themselves and they speak their like their own form of german so mm -hmm. you know you're not gonna really like 
figure out anything you yeah know, it's so limited yeah. <laughs> um yeah that i guess tribes would be like the the stoner the stoner west coast version of amish but um i know you refer to yourself as alt woke i don't know if that's a joke or if that's an actual position you take or if maybe it's a little of both i'm, I'm guessing but if you could break yeah, down the it, basics it, of being alt woke how does a man yeah, get alt woke it's, it, it's a little bit of both um a real position and just like kind of a joke it actually comes um it's a real thing. So there was it was made back in like um, the triple ampersand. They're like a, a moderate left or like a leftist journal. And basically, I want to say in I forgot which year, maybe it was made in like 2019 or 2018 or so. They made this thing called the Alt Woke Manifesto. And essentially what it was, um, there's a lot of people kind of like more associated with um, I guess like accelerationism, CCRU. So like for the most part, like most of the people, most of us we were like, like, I mean, on board with stuff like Black Lives Matter and stuff and all that. But what we caught early on, this sort of like commodification of these movements and like how like, you know, corporations trying to like capitalize off the movement. So the woke manifesto, basically it's, it's kind of like drawing a line in the sand and reasserting um, this sort of, anti-capitalist politics and kind of like pushing it into the present like basically updating this sort of like radical anti-capitalism that you would find in like you know 60s or 70s but kind of like just rehashing it to the president present and kind of like giving people um an idea like hey this is what's going on and like this is the sort of like phase of neoliberalism we need to kind of like interrogate and so it's called like the all woke manifesto like if you look it up it's pretty cool like and they're like um quoting like xenofeminism nick land before he had his heel turn um <laughs> things like that and it's kind of just like um critiquing instagram culture and stuff like that so like uh what would be hmm, so like what would be like all alt woke practice like how would alt woke be different maybe than what we see from uh quote unquote mainstream black lives matter hmm. where, where do these lines get drawn i, I guess is what i'm at what i'm asking I guess it would be, it kind of comes down to specific theorists. So for example, instead of like taking like DeRay McKesson, these sort of like famous people who basically got clout writing off like Black Lives Matter or whatever, it's more of like kind of, a, um, I guess like a new, a newer position. I would, I would almost like a formation of like, kind of like post-left anarchism where, um, for example, people I would consider like alt-woke uh, be like Coldwell Eshon, Mark Fisher, um, even people like William Gibson, Fanon, like these sort of like people that kind of sit beyond the kind of like orthodox um, Marxisms and things like that, that kind of like it's have like a more like decolonial analysis or a better understanding of like modern culture as opposed to like a more kind of super hardcore class reductionist, classical Marxist, you get what I'm saying? Or even okay. even not even like, even beyond like a sort of like tanky person, I guess it's just trying to kind of like update these analysis to the present instead of like letting stuff get co-opted by God knows what, all these kind of different things. Well, so um, before, before we go any further, I do want to ask you, is there any uh, other people you've mentioned, is there anybody who stands out to you as kind of being like, your personal favorite alt woke figure, someone who you would who, who you would um, recommend the most? Yeah, so right off top, a lot of like British theorists, um, specifically people like Paul Gilroy. Um, what's the this? There's this other guy. 
I forgot his name. Stuart Hall would be another one. Um, obviously, like Mark Fisher or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like basically, specifically, like I like Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy because they're not fixated on these sort of like these predicolations of like kind of of orthodoxies like they're able to kind of like take these different dogs whether it be like orthodox marxism anarchism just kind of like build into the present whether it be like analyzing media and stuff i feel like the guy that made the um the documentaries what's the british guy i can't get you out of my head Um, Uh, adam adam curtis i feel like adam curtis pulls a lot of his theories from Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall kind of has like a similar approach to media and analyzing the world. And I really like Paul Gilroy because what Paul Gilroy does, he does a really good job at demystifying race and kind Mm. of like showing how like formations of the empire just keep constantly like moving the goalposts of race and like Mm -hmm. kind of like um, neo-colonialism, neo-fascism and stuff and how like you can get how like racialized people could also participate in these formations of oppression and be like leaders specifically in the UK. Cause the, dis- the reason why I make a distinction of like liking a lot of UK theories, because I think they have a fundamentally different understanding of race. I don't know, maybe because like Britain is just a way different or perhaps older country. So I feel like a lot of things that he, we in North America sort of like fight over Britain, they kind of like understand it more because it's just like an older country. So I really appreciate like the perspectives, like a lot of like black theorists. From well, that. and then what in it, I think maybe another reason would be is that you didn't have slavery and um, you didn't have slavery and Jim Crow, at least within the UK itself. Right. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, and most, most of the most of the um, uh, black people, I think, living in the UK immigrated to the UK. I assume from mostly from the uh, the Caribbean, right? Yeah, the Windrush generation, and mm-hmm. then too, you have to think about like their class formations. Um, I think in general in the UK, um, people tend to have like a closer class proximity, whether you have like working class white people or black people from the Caribbean, because a lot you have to think about like the Industrial Revolution started in the UK, so like right off the bat, you were always going to kind of have like a lot of more. I guess class consciousness or class centered movements that were like in opposition to the bosses and doing like strikes and all that. And I feel like that fundamental, that sort of like class consciousness probably like um, influences the society much harder than Mm -hmm. whereas like a more racialized caste um, state like America does. Because, you know, like North America, specifically like South and North America, it's just like such a hardcore racial caste society as opposed to Britain. It's like so ingrained in our collective consciousness. Well, it's it's funny. I was and I always talk about this with um, with my British friends uh, is in the UK, like you wear your class on your tongue and it doesn't change like the way you speak. Um, is mm-hmm. you always speak as, as as a person of your class. In the U.S., it's the exact opposite. Everybody tries to sound more folksy than they are, especially the really rich people, especially the upper class people. And it's funny because you know when you hear like Hillary Clinton trying to put on a southern twang, um, <laughs> or or even the way in which like I do think that like W. Um, George W. Bush, I think he he played up the Texan folksy thing a lot more than he actually was, right? 
Um, yeah. And we, we, you could never, you, Margaret Thatcher would never try to do like a working class Liverpool accent or something like that. Like that would just be, no one would ever even attempt. Can you imagine if she tried to sound like somebody from like South London? Right, exactly. It just, it just wouldn't work at all. But in America, you will see rich people embarrass themselves doing this. And it's funny because we, we have this mythology in, in, in the U.S., everybody likes to say they're middle class. When I was growing up, everybody said they were middle class, whether they were living in a trailer or they were living in a fucking fucking McMansion. Like everybody referred to themselves as middle class. You would never hear somebody just straight up say I'm poor. And you would almost never ever hear somebody who was clearly like upper middle class or, or, or even upper class. They would never actually admit to being, to being wealthy. Everyone wants to say that they're middle class. And it, 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 it comes it's funny because almost no one mindset. Is. Yeah. You, you know where that comes from, right? It's, it's because like America, like we're such an expansionist country. It's it's like this like this this liber like weird libertarianism where like we have to like claim ownership of something and everything in order to feel validated. So we kind of like wear that on our tongue as opposed to like wearing a class, you know? Yeah, it's like everybody is like I forgot the quote, but like this is like this famous quote where this guy, he was just like Americans are like have like deluded themselves into thinking they're rich or something like we. Oh, no one thinks like, they're poor, America, just temporarily embarrassed millionaires. I think that's the quote. Yeah, we, we literally Americans, we think we're feudal lords. I feel like we internalize independence so much to the point of like being separate from Britain that we literally think we're like feudal <laughs> lords, you know? <laughs> Well, what I think is funny is that I, I think like the most inadvertently uh, pro-capitalist music, though, is hip hop. And this is what I think is funny. There's so many kids who are like middle class punks and they or, or you know, if not punk goth or, or metal or whatever. Who I, I knew so many kids like this who were like they hated their boring middle class life. And then the way you rebel is by embracing lower class culture. Um, one of my best buddies, he, his dad was a very wealthy lawyer. He grew up very middle class, but he just loved like <laughs> redneck culture and Pantera and like chewing dip and stuff. And I feel like he, that he identified with that as a way of revolting against his middle class life. But then if, if, it, if, if you're someone who's coming from a lower class background, like many people in rap do, what you want to do is the exact opposite. They want, um, they want, diamond chains and they want to and they want to yeah, flex they yeah. want to flex money and success but what's funny is it's all they they are it's actually very libertarian it's like I, i'm about guns and money and getting what's mine yeah. and that's <laughs> and and that's it and it's like dude that's actually very libertarian it's it's super it's like king of my castle like <laughs> it's like i'm i'm like i'm a rich rapper with guns i'm gonna buy a big mansion and like annex your lawn if you like step on it yeah it's so libertarian it's so anar- anarcho-capitalist yeah it's, it's kind of only yeah the only true anarcho-capitalists are gangster rappers it's true like they really do live that life just if having, like, so much the only- unregulated they have unregulated money hella yeah. property like none of their money is in the bank um hella guns unregistered guns it's just like the government's literally not telling them what they can do at all yeah it's for real if you if you violate the non-aggression principle, quote unquote, they will actually show up <laughs> and shoot you. Maybe Bundy, Bundy can like learn something. I feel like he did last summer when he endorsed Black Lives Matter. I was just like, whoa, like I was like, oh, crap. You could kind of see like the right wing libertarians like converging with with like black radical tradition this is pretty crazy moment. Well, I remember during the uh, during the whatever it was called, the Seattle Autonomous Zone, they changed the name right from whatever. Chaz Chop. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Chaz and it was Chop. Uh, Chaz Chop is that there was some some like uh, rapper dude showed up with a three D printed rifle and like declared himself the the generalissimo like immediately. Which yeah. who I guess who better to run your your post uh, your post American government than than a rapper with a three D printed gun? If that's not the twenty first century, what is? That's true. It's like it's completely decentralized. Damn, I didn't think of it like that. Damn, that makes sense. Wow. Um, I, I've heard you talk a lot about Indiana. Mm-hmm. You uh, were, were you born and raised in Indiana? Yeah, yeah. Uh, specifically South Bend, the Northwest. So like, I guess in terms of geographic location, I would be right in between Detroit and Chicago. I'm about almost two hours away from Chicago and I'm about maybe 50 minutes from Gary, Indiana. So I'm kind of like right there, the, the Northwest. Um, I guess for context, like Pete Buttigieg, he used to be my mayor. So before you- Oh, okay. So you're well acquainted. You're well acquainted with, with Mayor Pete. Um, yeah, yeah. I just, on a scale of one to 10, how inspired were you by Mayor Pete? One, two. Uh, just probably like a six wow yeah, six? i mean really that is yeah, much higher than i kinda, thought you're actually gonna give him i mean it's just kind of like marginal change what he did was just like like he's like really connected in the financial sector so what he did was just like invite a lot of developers to kind of um rebuild some infrastructure here but mostly just in the downtown areas like he built like all these roundabouts like we're in england or some shit like that and then he had like all these developers building like condominiums and stuff downtown but i'm like okay yeah cool that it looks cool. like the appearance of downtown obviously like looks better but just like dude the minimum wage here in the state is seven dollars and 25 dollars an hour who in their right mind is going to move into a condominium in south bay indiana and pay what around almost what fifteen hundred two thousand dollars a month here i i like kind of like failed to see what he was doing i think it was just to kind of like save face so that way he could use that to kind of like catapult himself to run as president and be like see look at what oh. i did here i did like this kind of like surface level neoliberal thing where I did, yeah i, I did like, some real estate stuff it's actually very trumpian yeah look, maybe look, like, I, like a baby gentrification yeah you know? look i did this no i did this big uh this big real estate deal it actually like didn't really help anybody but i built the damn thing right so that's an accomplishment and I remember when he came out of the closet, um, I remember the day when he did it, I was like, oh, like as soon as he did it, I was like, okay, I see what he's doing. This is this is like part of his broader political strategy to kind of like run bigger. Because the day he did that, it made so much major news. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because I'm just like, I feel like we were already at this sort of like point where open public figures, when they come out of the closet, it's not like that big of a deal. But it, for some reason, when he did it, it got so much media coverage. And I was just like, it clicked with me. I was like, oh, okay, I see what's going on. He's trying to like go for go. Like he's trying to go all the way. And then like a little bit later after that, he ran for president. He's doing kind of a rainbow Obama thing. Yeah. Mayor Pete. Seems, yeah. 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 He definitely. seems incredibly, he seems incredibly opportunistic. Right. Oh um, yeah. He played that like neoliberal identity politics car, like super hard. It worked. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. It worked. I guess he got, I guess I'll he probably got do a, the same know. thing. <laughs> Well, I just like, and then he also always gives me such a Manchurian candidate vibe because he, you know, he, he worked with the CIA and all this stuff and he just seems like he's been programmed. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was weird. So like when he was the mayor here, I remember on was working with him like on some things of like local activist groups. 
and we were just like, who is this guy? It was just like, he's just like so boring and just like, it, it, it was the weirdest vibe. We we're just like, who the hell is this guy? He literally came out of nowhere. It's like, this guy's like boring as hell. It, it was so weird because like the mayor before him, for the most part was like super cooperative with the community was like listening to activists and stuff and just trying to figure out. And then this guy just like comes out of nowhere, like a perfect record. And then just like, who the hell is this guy? Like, it was, it was so, it was so much of it. He had like so much of a disconnect from the community the entire time. It was just yeah, Mayor, so you Mayor might Pete, be right. Dude Mayor Pete to me, clone or something. yeah, Mayor Pete, like to me, like Mayor Pete is some um, like uh, <laughs> Mayor, Mayor Pete was like a refugee from the Yugoslav Wars, and then they just kept him in Guantanamo Bay, and then they had like Disney come in and consult on like how to make the perfect like neoliberal gay president character. And I think that they the just winter soldier. Him. Yeah, he's the he's like gay winter soldier <laughs> for the CIA. He probably like helped destabilize Somalia and Iraq. Yeah. During, oh, he's done unspeakable like, things, right? Yeah. They would unfreeze him and like send him into North Africa to, to destabilize countries and then put him back on ice. Yeah. And then they were like, they're like, all right, we need you to build some infrastructure in Indiana. It'll be part of your inspiring presidential run. You know what he is? He reminds me of like the perfect soldier that would exist in starship troopers because like you know like starship troopers it's essentially just like this woke imperialism where the people would be like i'm doing my part for the empire where you have like brown people you have gay people or whatever right and they're like all perfect soldiers serving the empire and like to me he reminds me of a starship troopers character <laughs> just like this perfect soldier it's so weird well, I wanted to I wanted to ask you um, just if like if you think that being from Indiana specifically, how, how that's maybe colored your your worldview, your politics. Is Indiana just a place that kind of breeds alt wokeness? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say largely Indiana and also um, so being like being from here and like being able to kind of like travel to big cities back and forth, model my worldview, specifically New York City. So like. A lot of my family is from New York City. Um, so like ever since I was a kid, I would just constantly be going there back and forth since I was a baby. And so like being able to kind of like jump into a big metropolitan area, get exposed to culture and whatnot, and then like come back home to this sort of like staunch, super MAGA land, mm -hmm. like center-right conservative Catholic city. You get like these two diametrically opposing culture so like you're dipping and diving that yeah it ultimately kind of like influenced my outlook um i think that's why i kind of like empathize with a lot of like worker working class politics because i'm like right in it you know right i, I want to talk about semantic hell um i think this might be where we'll actually disagree on some things a little bit but um as you and i are both very familiar with there's all of these now endless categories and subcategories and prefixes and bizarre ideologies, as um, Josh Cittarelli likes to call them. Uh, that, in my opinion, the reason why it's hellish is it really is like the Tower of Babel. Like you can't, you now cannot talk about anything because you have all these weird little labels that mean different things to different people. Wow, that's a brilliant analogy, Tower of Babel. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think that is the circle of hell that we're all, anyone engaged in any kind of online politics, because you've been kind of really going off on the quote unquote post left lately. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and from my my from my perspective i think you're like you've kind of gone you, you're kind of you, you're going into kind of like a horseshoe type of vortex i think but it's a it's a newer more advanced more unexplored version of horseshoe theory but i i'm just i i you know i myself would actually struggle to to define the term post-left even though it's how i describe myself or identify if i have to 
Um, I just, uh, if you could help me a little bit, like what is your definition of, of post-left? Okay, I guess, so first and foremost, the, the term post-left, it actually comes from um, anarchists, I think in like the 90s or whatever, like Bob Black. Bob Black, yes, specifically, yeah. Yeah, like Crime Think, they use that label. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think it was more of like a lifestyle anarchism that, that I think that Murray Bookchin specifically was like, Naming his arrows at yeah, yeah yeah and so i guess so that's what my familiarity of it was but this sort of like realignment that people are calling post left to me i see it as um fund or fundamentally like, like there's a big political shift realignment going on so like one of the things i think that's caused put the line in the sand was the uprisings last summer. So like the uprisings last summer, it essentially kind of, okay, so like Bernie lost twice, uh, the uprising happened. So it essentially drew such a hard line in the sand that like you either supported the uprisings in some way, or you would just like diametrically opposed to it. And like these sort of like um, political realignments, it reminds me of things that happened in the UK. So in, in a, so since America is so such a younger country, like our kind of like politics are finally becoming mature or having growing pains, like this sort of thing, it already happened in the UK. And what that is, you get sort of like, I guess more, I would say like economically leftist, but like socially conservative um, political parties like Blue Labor and things like that, where mm -hmm. you'd have people who are kind of like lean left they use like kind of like marxist analysis or generally just leftist things but they tend to take more i guess conservative positions on things and this this already happened in the 90s so the thing i guess what i'm trying to get around to it reminds me specifically of um of living marxism slash uh spike they were kind of like these former people that were in a the a party called the revolutionary communist party and it like it broke up they were like a bunch of like trotskyites and they broke up and they made a magazine called living marxism where they would like analyze culture from a marxist way but take a little bit more social conservative stances and like over time progressively they just kept sliding further right to the point of they're just like right libertarians and if you fast forward now a lot of them are actually on boris johnson's um cabinets and i feel like that sort of trajectory of like how you could be like radical and take that trajectory into the right comes from analyzing culture wrongly like when you ignore issues like race specifically or in the like ethnic conflicts and you sort of like downplay the impact those have on different cultures and sort of be like oh race isn't real or whatever so let's just ignore it like over time this sort of like as much as i like this sort of like colorblind approach i think if you go like too hard over time you start getting into these gray areas or blind spots and you start missing things and you just kind of like the overton window it just keeps like shifting right and i see this sort of like um political alignment in north america kind of like taking a trajectory because i mean like I guess for the most part, where I converge with the post left is critiques of um, of like woke capitalism, specifically like how corporations they can kind of like capitalize on movements or whatever. But I want to I I like, talk a little bit about woke capitalism specifically. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the problem is because so many people, um, they they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They can't make a distinction that like yeah. Of course, movements are going to get co-opted by companies or whatever, but that doesn't mean we throw the initial message out with the bathwater. And I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of people kind of like conflate it and they're just like, oh, well, fuck it. We're just going to like and because of that, it kind of makes you just push 
like sort of like rightward positions. So this is. And I think you have to hold a line when you critique that stuff. You, so this is what yeah, I this is what I struggle with, and I'm I'm actually very interested to hear what you you um, you have to say. Is that I know you you you've joked a bit about people being like, oh, I heard Starbucks say Black Lives Matter. It's too mainstream. I'm out. Like that kind of thing where there's like woke branding and people are just like, this isn't cool anymore. It's not punk anymore, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I hate it. But I would say this, woke capital is deeper than that because you have, you know, Jeff Bezos and Amazon doing these quote unquote heat maps, for example, um, for Whole Foods, where they would figure out, you know, who is the most likely to unionize versus who is the the least likely to unionize. And generally because it was, um, it was the more, uh, diverse a, a work environment was, the less likely it was to unionize. They concluded that like the best strategy to have to stop unionization was to make different workplaces more diverse. So it's and it, you know, you look at things like that. And it's like that's more than branding. That's actually they're using wokeness or diversity or uh, whatever to to actually break the working class. It's an actual strategy for them. It's the same thing with Coca Cola. They have this like anti whiteness training thing that they were doing. Um, and the, and what is anti-whiteness? Well, whiteness, the way they were defining it, it's like anybody who complains too much or is too assertive that they're doing quote unquote whiteness. Um, and to me, again, what that really sounds like is they're not really talking about whiteness. They're talking about anybody who might actually be um, too class conscious, actually. Yeah. So I think what goes, the initial thing that kind of like came to my mind with that is was, um, I think there's this initial, there's this assumption that people of color are like kind of like inherently more woke or whatever <clears throat> but that that isn't necessarily the case it's more of like a generational thing especially when you think about like immigrants and things like that especially like a lot of like older people of color specifically they tend to be more socially conservative and tend to be like more pro state or whatever and i i think maybe perhaps these companies they could have like an inside of that and like or like realizing that hey like maybe not the average person is not that radical or they're probably just kind of like indoctrinated in some ways to kind of like embrace this milk toast liberalism liberalism that's like completely mm -hmm. stripped away from like a radical class consciousness or like an intuitive understanding of how like race and things of that nature kind of works but dang that's a that's actually just scared me what you just said like that description of the heat map like it's crazy, yo. Like, yeah, so this is like, this is, maybe let me, let me put it another way. I often hear when people criticize so-called class reductionism, they say, oh, when you say working class, when you say class, 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 working class, that's just a code word for white or whiteness. You're just talking about white people or class white people, blah, blah, blah. That's what you mean by working class. And what I'm seeing is that it's actually the opposite. It's when you have these big woke capital companies like Amazon or, or Coca-Cola, when they're saying whiteness, don't, don't do whiteness, you need to deconstruct your whiteness, what they're actually talking about is class consciousness. That's going to become their code word for class con consciousness, mm. because anybody who then opposes them uh, or criticizes them, they can smear as being racist. And to me, yeah, like, people did that to Bernie. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. This whole Bernie bro thing was was total garbage, but it was like that. I think it was a very effective strategy. And I don't know, like, I I don't know how many um, Elizabeth Warren supporters you've spoken to, but I feel like a yeah. five minute conversation with a hardcore Warrenista, a five minute conversation, if that doesn't get you, if that doesn't convert you to the anti woke left, 
yeah. If that if that shit doesn't convert you to the anti woke left, I don't know what will because they're literally just like, no, the only reason you don't like Elizabeth Warren is uh, is because you're sexist or because you're racist or blah 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 or you're being a Bernie bro blah blah blah, and it, it drives me nuts because what Elizabeth Warren did was just as bad as what Rachel Dolezal did. If not worse. Yeah, yeah. If not worse. And you know where and that she comes just gets from, away right? I, I'm glad you bring that up. You know where that comes from, right? Um, so I always say that, like, this bastardization of identity politics is essentially a four-way battle. If you sit and think about it, like, identity politics, this, this bastardized version, it can be employed from everybody on the political spectrum, whether it be, like, uh, you know, like the upward left quadrant, bottom right quadrant, bottom left quadrant, uh, upper right quadrant or whatever. And because the crazy thing, like, I feel like because that sort of bastardization of identity politics that strips identity away from the formation of class, um, it's it's so easy to kind of like infiltrate things. And I, f- I feel like it was it's definitely been exported to people on on purpose because the thing about it when it's it's crazy because like I feel like when people when when I sort of like. It's weird because people often accuse me of being a class reduction. I guess when I sort of employ the term, I'm using it specifically for critics when I'm fighting them, when they feel like you have to ignore the, um, the, the not the formation, but like, ab- like actually the, the impact that race has on like capitalism, specifically within North America, whereas in like when an Elizabeth Warren type person, because they don't have an intuitive understanding of class and they only able to think from this kind of like standpoint epistemology, they think they were like, oh, you're a Bernie bro. So you can see how it's like employed as like a four-way battle because here's the thing about it. Any um, person who with like a more, with a principal understanding specifically of like black radical politics would know that class is just as equally as important as race. Like people like the Black Panthers and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure like if those guys were alive today, they would probably be called class reductionists by like neoliberal feminists, right? right? People like Fred Hampton, yes. Huey P. Newton, hell, even like Angela Davis. I feel like a lot of people like Angela, they actually misconstrue her arguments. And there's a lot of like really weird ideologies that were born out of the more extreme forms of I- neoliberal identity politics, specifically things like Afro pessimism. Like to me, I think that's a form of neoliberal identity politics. And, is from blackness in its extreme because what it does it takes blackness this sort of like construct of race and completely strips it so far away from the formation of class that it's like almost sci-fi like the way they talk about blackness like is this all-encompassing specter that like has existed across space and time and i'm like that doesn't make sense because you know race is a social construct yeah it's metaphysical right and and then it's like you your being black is actually like they are actually saying that it is just a curse you have to accept and yeah so i guess that's why people often say wokeness is a religion which is valid (laughs) well but this is a the 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 joke i always make though it's like well then what do you call a white afro pessimist i've actually seen some uh a grad student that's what you call a white afro pessimist somebody with a phd i always okay my joke is always what do you call a white afro pessimist all right because basically that's like like the the actual alt-right people that's kind of the argument they're basically afro pessimists they're like oh well, yeah, we'll never same with we Zionists. can't ever right we can't we can't we can't we can't integrate we can't be part of the same country like so you know they're just they're just doomed right they're just they're kind yeah, of saying the same from things the, from the perspective yeah it comes from the same place of like extreme reductionism literally um, if you study like Zionism, 
I mean, the way if you literally just switch out words, a lot of similar words, it it, it sounds similar to like Afro pessimism, just like this extreme, like just this formation of just yeah, Herzl, like identity the, yeah, the, strip. The, Theodore Herzl, the guy who was like the founding father of Zionism. I mean, he was a pariah for the most part in his day because he's making this argument. He's making this argument to you know, Jews living in Eastern Europe who have lived in Eastern Europe for over a thousand years, right? And who are like pretty integrated into society. Um, he's making these arguments that it's like, no, we need to pack up and leave because Europe will never accept us. Europe will never accept us. And Zionism was a complete mm-hmm. minority view amongst Jews until World War II and the Holocaust. And then in retrospect, it was sort of like, well, everything everything Herzl said was true or, you know, you're in a position now where there's 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 nobody else to no one else to listen to, basically, or no, nothing else to follow in, in you know coming out of the ruins of of World War II and the Holocaust. But um, I guess what freaks me out is that the, there's no reason you couldn't have that switch in other ethnic groups, white or black, yeah, or brown or internalization otherwise. Internalization of trauma. Yeah. You can see how like that that generational trauma is internalized to the point of just like, yeah, that's that's wow, that's oh, that's scary. Because like right now, right now, looking at the fact of the matter is, is that like the white working class in the United States is in a state of like massive decline. Um, you know, yeah. why it's in a state of massive decline is another is another question. But I, I it's not hard for me to imagine this like <laughs> woke capital dystopia. Um, it where radicalizes all the, them. Exactly. Where all the all these major like Coca-Cola, it's printed on Coca, a bottle of Coca-Cola, like overcome your whiteness <laughs> or something like that. And if yeah. you are living in a trailer park and your mom and dad are dead from um, from opiate overdoses or something like that, it's it's not hard for me to imagine, though. It's not hard for me to imagine a future white underclass embracing basically a, a white Zionist or white nationalist type of worldview. Yeah. And that's essentially... I mean, kind of what's already happening of the in all, some ways, yeah. yeah the formations of the all right and i actually kind of like see um some of that resentment in my like day job just kind of like working with that community like disenfranchised uh lower class community i often like have like a lot of white clients who struggle with like opiates and stuff and you kind of like see this this resentment or not necessarily a resentment but kind of like they feel lost like ideologically because i mean i've even mm-hmm. had some guys tell me they'd be like hey yeah i voted for trump but like he's not giving me a, a union job or a job in the factory. And they kind of like, just, they, 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 they weren't like, getting the third position as that they would, that they don't. Yeah. Want. Like they feel like poor, like they feel like they got played. So yeah, you can see like, and so I think that certain blocks or circles within this sort of like post left sphere, I think they're fundamentally confused. And because they see like last summer had the uprisings, companies capitalize off blackness you know a lot of black people got people fired or got new jobs or got that deal at a company whatever especially i see it a lot within the art world i can see this sort of like resentment bubbling up like a lot of like white artists or whatever they feel like they're kind of irrelevant to the conversation because the status quo is changing to the point where it's starting to like accommodate racialized people even if it's not necessarily helping them but rather like marketing or tokenizing them so like i could see like why a white person would kind of like fundamentally get confused if they don't intuitively understand the formations of capitalism like they would see that and be like oh fuck off or whatever and it's like this resentment just kind of like builds up it just surfaces well, i don't know and i guess you can see like the contradictions of like capitalism going on right and i, I don't know if you saw this article about uh, i think her name is colors she's one of the the founders of of blm and she just bought a million dollar mansion oh yeah um, patricia I, yeah that is I, I can't think of worse optics <laughs> than that i can't I really don't can't think of worse optics than that yeah 
the crazy thing about it, like when I remember when Black Lives Matter first started, there were so many abolitionists, um, so many like anarchists and whatnot too. They were like highly, highly critical um of the movement and they were just like okay like what are the specific goals like what are you trying to meet are you going to capitulate to the to the um the dnc the establishment or are you going to make your own organization and maybe people would be like hey are you going to be anti-capitalist like and like you can kind of like just see how like it just getting because they never take they never drew any specific hard lines in the sand at the beginning you could kind of see them getting like absorbed by the establishment and on top of that there are so many ideological rifts in between different mm. black lives matter organizations across the usa it's just like what exactly are you standing for and and i think in reaction to that you're starting to see like a lot of like black socialist organizations form and things like that that kind of take a more explicitly anti-capitalist approach or or mm. people that are they're, they're anti-capitalist yet they want to make like coalitions based around like like, like working class formations and like building with like international stuff because i mean i've always been like super super critical of or of black lives matter since the beginning and it's weird to kind of like watch it while the cause is noble like the methods i can't 100 percent get behind you know this is and i mean but this is kind of what i mean where i think with blm when you started having like big corporations donate money to blm and from what it looks like to me buying off their leadership is i don't know what else you would call that you know um, oh yeah definitely <laughs> and i it's sort of like that amazon strategy again that heat map where it's like um fomenting uh racial division or just you know just having this sort of aesthetic identity politics d- divorced intentionally divorced from any kind of uh, class politics ultimately just serves capitalism and hmm. um it becomes sort of like this moral armor for for capitalism for neoliberalism and so i guess when i say like i'm post-left it's because we had the proper marxist experiment um that ended in the ussr and in china and i'm not i'm not a tanky and i'm not one of these people who's going to defend those experiments um at all to me to me the stance that i take off the jump to me the ussr was doomed from the jump it was a corrupt state capitalist enterprise um even I would even go as far as saying like China's a, a, a cesspool of like, I don't like, you know, and I guess that comes from a more orthodox or anarchist analysis. Where, well, I just, right? I think it's because, I think it's because the Marxist Leninist idea, the Leninist idea was it doesn't matter if we have the preconditions um, for socialism, we'll just force, we, the party will just force um, heroically, romantically force our way uh, <laughs> in, into creating these, these preconditions. And it's sort of like, I mean, to me, it's like Stalinism really isn't that much different uh, than what Britain or the United States did. It's just that Stalinism is just doing it on turbo mode. Exactly. Doing it, yeah, and doing it, doing it quickly. I like that you bring that up because Bakunin, um, he was actually purged from parties for pointing this out. He actually predicted <laughs> the yes. rise and fall of the USSR before it was even a thing. And he was just like, this is going to turn into like a state capitalist nightmare. And they like kicked him out of the party or whatever. He had to be like going to exile. <laughs> right. And then you exactly. He knew he knew it. He, he was, I guess, Machiavellian enough. He, he understood the nature of power well enough that he it wasn't hard for him to see what was going to happen there. But then we had this sort of what I would call new left, for lack of a better term, the kind of like 60s psychedelic. I know people say cultural Marxism, like it's a big conspiracy, but there is a cultural Marxist aspect to um, to what I would call the new left or the Frankfurt School. They were very concerned with culture 
and yeah, you know, yeah. relationships and culture. I don't think it was like this like well thought out conspiracy or something like that. But it, but there is there was an aspect of it where it's like it's very much about it, it's very much about changing the culture and revolutionizing the culture. And, yeah, that's sort of like Gramsci. Yeah, that's sort of like yes. Gramsci we're gonna we're gonna um, or Adorno or or Marcuse or whatever. Where it's like we're going to. Uh, create this this uh kind of um again sort of romantic heroic counterculture right we're going to create this big counterculture yeah. that's, and see that's to me i'll be straight up i hate the frankfurt school to me i think stuff like that is just stupid and pointless because like i'm more of a um th- th- one of the reasons why i adore the black panther party is because like right off the bat what made them so distinct from all of the other black civil rights movements they were just like we don't care if you wear dashikis like what does this sort of like aesthetic stuff has to do with actual material reality they was just like we don't care about this black power crap like we're trying to feed people we're trying to build hospitals give people create material conditions to actually help people not all this aesthetic waving your fist you know dashiki it's just like no and i I feel like stuff like the frankfurt school they kind of like buy it's just they're thinking too much all this aesthetic it's just like how is how does this (laughs) connect to people's live realities like i don't and i feel like the problem is like you said, that sort of like cultural Marxism stuff, too much of that stuff, it comes from top down, like these ivory tower, like university spaces where people can kind of like create all these convoluted theories, specifically Afro-pessimism, where you get like a PhD person, tenured professor making what, $100,000 a year, make this convoluted theory and be like, oh, I'm the most oppressed person in the room. And it's just like, no, how does that connect to regular people? You know, it's well, like, it is like with the with the Afro-pessimism <laughs> stuff. It's like, yeah, I went to school for 14 years and my conclusion is black people are doomed. Thank you. <laughs> Please <laughs> yeah, Venmo like, me. Please on, Venmo like, me. <laughs> really? It's just like, bro, it's just it's too nihilistic for me. This like dead end politics. But, so, yeah, I, I guess there is a I do still feel like and I'm going to get a little conspiratorial, I guess. I do feel like there is a psyop aspect to it, because in the same way that it's sort of like um you know maybe like marxism ended in these sort of like failed uh failed state experiments like what we have now is this sort of like uh cultural new leftism that maybe started off as being like idealistic and revolutionary you know coming out of the 60s coming out of the boomer generation and now it's been it's all been institutionalized first in academia but now it's crossed over into like corporate hr and now it's actually you have actual woke capital where it's not just that they brand their products this way it's that it's an actual strategy like they use they use quote-unquote wokeness as a way of breaking up the working class it's crazy because like a lot of black radicals in the 60s and 70s, they predicted this, this sort of like formation of woke capital. Um, I think it's specifically the Black Liberation Army in one of their manifestos or whatever, they actually predict that they say we can't just use this sort of like formation of um mm. of blackness alone. They they were talking about like class collaborators, and they I, I remember reading they they literally said that black academics the black bourgeoisie cannot lead our struggle because they often become class collaborationism or um they kind of like lead the struggle into these realms where it just it just dies out you know and i'm like damn it's really scary to kind of like look at that now and you look at you know woke capital and things like that so i i can see why like a person they would see them and be like fuck it i don't give a fuck like go full nihilist you know i mean like- and this is this is sort of like i'm like i don't know I, there's part of me that wants to still believe that there can be some kind of some kind of humanistic quote-unquote progressive politics quote-unquote that can actually help people but i am you know i guess i'm like gray-pilled i'm like i'm like uh, a, I'm, little I'm bit, a, a little fighter. bit a little bit 
I because I guess the the larger point I'm trying to make is that it's like I'm not a tanky. I'm not going to defend the like failed <laughs> leftist experience of, of the past. I think it, I think that that's silly, right? Um, but then yeah. I'm also not a wokey because all of this like uh, woke new left stuff that may have been radical in the '60s the is synthetic now, leftist <laughs> is now right. It, it's now like the it, it's turned into woke capital. So it's like for me, I always say like I I don't know what left is left. I don't know if there's any yeah, left yeah. left in me. I don't know if there's any, even left or left. When I say post left, I'm kind of like, I'm saying like we're at a historical point where maybe there just isn't a left anymore. And sometimes people yeah. think that sounds crazy, but I don't, uh, I, I think if you follow more or less the, the, the argument I've tried to make here, I, I think you see maybe why I would use that term. So maybe it's not in a yeah. Bob Black way. I used to be really into Bookchin actually. Um, I still am. I'm still very, you know, influenced and, and, and inspired by him. He wrote one of my favorite books, but um even he at the end of his life, you know, he was, he didn't call himself an anarchist or a communist anymore. He started calling himself a communalist, but then it's like, that's, that's him being sort of post-left in a way, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Last summer, I was a bit black-pilled for a moment because you just, like, everything was gray. And then what really kind of, like, really made me snap into reality, per se, was Fanon. Um, specifically when he was talking about how, like, the colonial world it seeks to split the world into two into like a dualistic Manichian world and i realized that maybe because like the way social media algorithms the way we communicate on social media we only can communicate in ones or twos extremes like this right. this dualism it's a binary and i was just like wait a minute when I think about reality, there's so many contradictions, how like, like, um, especially just thinking about like people's struggles in other countries or whatever. And I was just like, wait, the world is much more complex than what it kind of we present it to be. But then again, this is kind of like me more. I'm just naturally I'm petty. I'm petty as hell. <laughs> but that pettiness, it comes from like optimistic. Like I'm a fighter. Like I would keep fighting until the sink, the, the boat, the, you know, I, the sinks. even That's if even me. if you drown with it. Yeah, like I would never give up, even in the, like the face of Armageddon. Like I would literally just keep. That's just me. I'm a fighter. Like <laughs> I do see you. I do every time I check Twitter. It's like I see Valencia beefing like five people at once. You got all. You do Yo, have some pretty dedicated haters, which I have to say that means that you were doing something. <laughs> yeah, my friend told me maybe it's a sign of like a new realignment happening. Yo, I'm getting I'm getting flanked right now by tankies. And like more, I, I, I don't really think they're post leftist per se. Them, I consider them like dissident right people. Yo, I'm getting flanked so hard by them like right now. Like, and this well, you is got you got your Twitter, Twitter deleted. You had like ten thousand yeah. followers. And your Twitter deleted. What what do you, what happened there? Was it like one post in particular? You think, or just a bunch of people um, coming after you? It was it was one post. So basically, I forgot the guy's name. He's like this famous Republican commentator. Um, he tweeted that <laughs> him and his producer, they were going to reenact the George Floyd m murder um, just to see that. Oh, Crowder, was, Crowder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Crowder. He's like, I'm going to have my producer lean on my neck or shoulder blades for eight minutes or whatever to see what it'd be like to walk. Yeah, I saw that. His yeah, and I said, I was like, well, I hope you, your producer, succeeds. <laughs> and oh, then, yeah, like, yeah, no, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> and then 14 hours later in my account, I got a notification I got flagged for enabling violence, but how does saying somebody succeed is violent? So I sent an appeal, but Twitter, they, you, you could take a year for an appeal to get. So I'm just like, oh, well, yeah, I got suspended for that. You were just like, look, I knew that Crowder was conducting a scientific experiment and I just felt that. 
Yeah, that's what I said in the appeal. I was just like, oh, I was just congratulating him and his producer <laughs> on their wonderful work. You know, that's why I said oh, succeed. Man. So maybe the appeal could go through. Um, apparently, a, a friend who's plugged into someone that works at Twitter, they said it was like a bot that flagged it. So right. maybe there's a potential. Anything, anything that looks like a death threat. Um, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> damn, that sucks. Of all the things to go down for, um, you, go, you have to go down for Crowder? Shit. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking lame. Um, let me see. Do, 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 do. Um, I guess I just want to talk uh, talk to you a little bit too. Um, now that we're getting sort of to the to the end here, um, it does seem like. <laughs> I mean, we've been talking about your prolific shit talking abilities on Twitter. It seems like you there's always like a lot of DJ drama going on, and I I was just hoping you could talk to me a little bit about like how much political ideological struggle and sort of like the 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 dj world how much those two things collide what, what's the deal with that oh it, yeah it, it's crazy it's 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 a lot so i would say that specifically within techno like people they want to be political but the problem is most people in techno they have the political death of a kiddie pool and like as someone who has been involved in politics and or just generally has a, a i guess some kind of like better understanding of these things it like drives me insane so you just have like all these people making collectives just using like these sort of like neoliberal identity signifiers to kind of like fake this radicalism without actually like doing like material change yeah and so like i think right now what's happening though because we what well, we've been locked up for like a year and a half now i feel like a lot of people realize that they can't necessarily use that whole identity grift anymore because you know once clubs open back up, promoters are going to be less inclined to kind of like spend money on people and whatnot. And I've literally been watching people ruin their careers, just tweeting like the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. And to the point where like promoters are like seeing it and I'm seeing like, it's weird. But, like people are fighting each other on social media over gigs that don't exist. And I'm just like, won't wow. you just shut up and write music and practice, read a book, maybe learn well, something in this meantime, you know, like. That's interesting. It's sort of like they're, they're living out they're living out like fantasy careers because they're locked up and they can't actually play shows to sort of like to fill the void. They have to talk shit. Yeah. Is that a lot of people is? can't cope. Yeah. And also too, a lot of people, they can't cope. Cause you know, like a lot of people, they DJ full time. Like I've never DJ full time. Like I would mm. like tour in between my day job, play a few gigs, but for the most part, that was like never me. So I feel like a lot of people still don't want to accept the fact that, Hey, maybe you got to get like a little day job or whatever, or, switch up your hustle really like you know uh you know just become soundcloud rappers that seems to be the most lucrative <laughs> job left in music yeah i don't know how these soundcloud rappers make so much money maybe i'm too old i don't get it it's their algorithm they like grew up on social media they so know how, they, how cyberpunk like, is that like <laughs> yeah they're like masters at social media and i feel like even even in the DJing world, like now, yeah, you have to be like super good at social media to be yeah. i see like a lot of older guys they just becoming irrelevant because they suck at using like instagram or whatever and they just keep yeah. complaining there's like these kids in their identity politics <laughs> it's just like no bro you just suck at like promoting your stuff you just start, you just need to learn what a hashtag is it's not really about the yeah yeah um <laughs> last thing i wanted to talk about uh i just want you to speculate a little bit uh, i want to know how you are feeling i need the i need the alt woke perspective on what you think 2024 is going to be like where you see america going what do you think is going to happen with the culture? Any and all of it. Um, right off the jump, the neoconservatives, 
they're really organized right now. Like guys like you're going to see like a lot of guys like Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, guys who kind of have like a pretty good understanding of like techno oligarchs and like how they have to like fight the elite. And there's this there's such a big formation. I feel like in some ways the right, they're basically like co-opting the language of like working class politics. So like progressives or whatever, like they really need to get it together. Yo, like it, it, it's it's scary. <laughs> you even see like Tucker Carlson kind of like trying to co-op the language of that. But, you know, historically, that's what has happened with like far right movements. Like historically, they would take like the language of like leftism or whatever and just kind of like repackage it to kind of like win over um, social democratic upper middle class people and things of that nature. Right. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about third positionism because I know you you you've been kind of on a you've been you've been kind of raging about third positionism lately. I've noticed. Um, yeah, I see it. It's coming, yo. <laughs> well, well. So this is my thing: is that with the thing about third positionism is that you know third positionism th- there's third positionism proper in the term in the sense of like uh, actual literal fascists, um, both both like you know both national socialism and like Italian fascism. And some of the, you know, it's other offshoots in, in Spain, you had like phalangism or whatever, but basically like third positionism being this like corporate state, but corporate, not just in the sense of corporations, but like the state being a body with, you know, a head and having like a command economy that can, you know, satiate the working class. It gives, you know, it builds infrastructure and has, has projects for the working class, but it's, it's ultimately meant to be, um, it's ultimately, ultimately meant to enforce like a very conservative, uh, culture, right? So it's, it's a little bit, mm-hmm. it's, it's not capitalism, but it's definitely not Marxist communism. It's, it's something in between. And that's a little bit, yeah. it's definitely more re- reactionary than it is progressive. Not left, neither right, as right. they say. <laughs> but then again, it's sort of like, when you say third positionism in a modern context, I mean, you had Bill Clinton talk about third way. Yeah, um, you have Blair, the Nordic, Tony Blair. right? You have the Nordic economies that are technically third way, but I wouldn't call them third position. I think that'd be a little unfair, right? They just yeah, mean yeah, a yeah. robust social democracy. But then even things like I would say the one country in the world that's like the closest to actual third positionism today would probably be would probably be China. Yeah, you even a, Mexico too. Mexico, I'm, I'm actually you know this is embarrassing because I live right next to Mexico, but I don't know I don't know too much about what's going on with them right now. I, my understanding yeah, is they're, they they're just current have one. president. He, he kind of has like third positionism, third way. I like that you bring up China because like for all the tankies listening to this, yo, like China is not communist. Like it's a totalitarian one party state ruled and they use it's a surveillance state. So like I would even go as far as saying if you want to get like really technical and the definition is almost like borderline fascists, like the way that they treat their citizens, you know, and, and it's just like. I think like the kind of like next, like you said, wave or like something similar to third position, I think people are going to be attaching themselves to climate change. You're probably going to be seeing like a little bit more harder nationalisms attaching themselves to like climate change and the immigration, things of that matter. I think that like the the right wing, they really going to start start being, they really going to start talking about like climate change a lot if within North America. <laughs> Which will be weird. It'll be weird because when I, you know, when I, when we were growing up, the only people who talked about the environment were left wingers. <laughs> this is Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, they're like, going to use it to kind of like to enforce tighter borders and things of that nature. And wh- watch. All right. So, do you think we're going to see AOC say that we need to close the border for climate change reasons? <laughs> She's almost you know, there. Rate, She's yeah, almost at there. At this rate, too. yeah. I would, we could just go on a women and say it. At this point, yeah. like, anything is possible from her. You'll get like she's doing a full heel turn, like WWE style. It's like, yo, what's going on? 
probably, I'm probably going to get jumped for that China take, but I don't care. I mean, I don't do the the China stands are crazy. The China stands. <laughs> there's the people who are like, but here's the thing. Like, I'll be, I'll actually still be like Landian in this regard. He doesn't like Nick Land doesn't believe that China is actually making communism. He's just saying that yeah. like they're going to be like the engine of the future because they have they've built such an efficient state capitalism. Like and techno capitalists. Yeah. yeah. If you want, if you want techno capitalist singularity, or if you want to see like what that could lead to, uh, I guess we're going to find out with regards to China. But even then. Yeah. I would not know if I call them, I would actually call them third positionism. I would just say they're probably the closest thing in the world to an actual third position. Maybe I, outside I like of, maybe that you say that because it makes me go back to your comment about horseshoe theory. Something that I've been entertaining is just like, I think the, the horseshoe theory is, is pretty much debunked um, because like politics is so old. You like, there's so many like overlaps Like you could be like far left and be like economically, socially, you could be like socially conservative, but like economically mm-hmm. leftist and like be on one end and why you can like be on the right. And like so much stuff often overlaps. And one way you can see how it overlaps is Dugan, you know, like Duganism with like yeah. the pan-Eurasianism, like the fourth was the fourth political theory. You yeah. can just see like how like this syncretism, how you get like so many kind of like diametrically opposing things you would see on the horseshoe theory, just kind of like... Right. I floating around. <laughs> I mean, I definitely will still defend horseshoe theory to a certain extent. I think that horseshoe theory is just kind of I think that if you believe in a historical dialectic, if you believe in uh, whether you know you're being Hegelian or Marxist about this, I think if you believe in some kind of historical dialectic, horseshoe theory is inevitable. There's going to be a yeah. unity of opposites. That's gonna that's gonna be where the conflict actually takes place. How that relates to third positionism, I mean, I guess I'm just saying like third positionism now has become I feel like it is an antiquated term because all of these different, like all, all, all politics ends up being syncretic, especially as the world becomes more um, internet based, yeah, however you want to call it, digital based, more globalized, yeah. right? It, it's just going to get weirder and weirder. It's like even watching like a lot of like young right wingers on Politogram sort of like embrace Islam, right? That would have been unthinkable when I was a kid because Islam was the big really Merili Penn a few weeks ago. Uh, I mean, with the Front National Party, they're as xenophobic and Islamophobic as it comes. And when she was like debating um, a centrist opponent, she was just like, oh, I'm actually more accepting of Islam than you. And I was just like, wow, as a far right person, literally like outflanking a centrist. Oh, I see. I think (laughs) if you want to take if you want to if you want to hear my take, that's probably going to get me beat up, is that I think one Mm -hmm. of the things that's going to be really funny in the future in Europe is that all all of these like kind of left-wing parties that were sort of like kind of like pro-Islam or pro-Islamic immigration or something like that, I think they're going to be really shocked when a lot of those parties and people start to side with the, a lot of Muslim people start to side with the political right. Because they might be like, hey, maybe we don't like these, like uh, we don't like these um, uh, Catholic right-wingers that much, but we do like them more than gays and feminists. Yeah, you already seen that. Um, It's been happening a little bit. My friend, one of my friends, he's from France. He's a Caribbean guy. And he told me that a lot of Black Caribbeans in France, they actually voted Penn. And I was just like, ah. And Stuart (laughs) Stuart Hall, um, no, Paul Giroy also talks about this, how like you're going to start getting like these racialized class of people starting to vote like further right (laughs) you can just see like this reality is just doesn't make zero sense right now (laughs) (laughs) oh all right bro well um valencia thank you so much for coming on um thank you
before you go, anybody you want to give a shout out to, including yourself, where can people hear your music? Where's the best place to, to catch up with you? What, what's your new Twitter? Uh, my new Twitter is Abolish Girl Boss. Other than that, you can catch me on MoMA PS5. Um, I want to give a shout out to my friend in London, Rosa. She's really cool, really interesting politics. We talk a lot about international politics. Uh, mm-hmm. Give a shout out to Black Socialists of America. Please follow them. Uh, you can learn a lot. Check out their reading list. Um, you can find me on SoundCloud under He Valencia. Well, I mean, everything you can find me on on my Instagram at MoMA.PS5. You can find everything from there. All right. Um, and before you go, uh, Valencia, I just wanted to ask you, may I bring my white wife? You may not bring your white wife. <laughs> uh, why, why can't I bring my white wife? She would she would disrupt and destabilize the Black Liberation Movement, <laughs> the Pan African Kingdom. <laughs> oh damn! All right. Well, thanks for letting me know. Thank you. All right, bro. Thank you so much. Take it easy.